Welcome to Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast, where we interview our industry's top female executives from Australia, New Zealand, and around the world. I'm Michelle Batsis, your host and the Chief Executive Officer of the Public Transport Association, Australia, New Zealand. We're raising the voices of women for everyone who works in public transport and mobility, and particularly for any of our listeners who are early in their transport careers and looking for inspiration. Each of our guests shares her views on the future of public transport and provides insights into their career journeys. Make sure you follow Women Who Move Nations on your favorite podcast platform and rate the show to help more people find us. You can also join our community on LinkedIn by searching Public Transport Association Australia New Zealand. We're also on Twitter at PTAANZ underscore or visit us at www.ptaanz.org. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, and thanks for joining me for another episode of Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Batsis, and I'm delighted to introduce my guest today, Mayuri Ginatilaka, the group leader for New Zealand at Arup. Mayuri, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. I'm so excited for today's discussion. Thanks, Michelle. I'm really excited to be here. Kia ora. Kia ora to you as well and to all of our Kiwi friends. Okay, we're going to get stuck into it. I'd love to hear more about your current role and what you do. So if you could share with our audience, what's your current role and what are your key focus areas? Thanks, Michelle. Uh, my current role is the New Zealand Group Leader for Arab. So I'm responsible for the Arab operation in New Zealand. Um, that means I have to cut across the uh, setting the strategy for the business and then ensuring we have the plan to implement that strategy, which goes everything across the operation in terms of looking after our people, looking after our clients, and then the delivery of our projects. It's a really exciting role for me because I get to touch uh, all the key sectors in New Zealand. And uh, when I first looked at Arup as a business, the alignment between my values and the values of Sir Arab Ove, who set the business up and how this business works uh, across the globe is actually very aligned. So it's an exciting place for me to um, run an operation from. Yeah, that's great. It's really interesting, actually, to think as well around how the company you work for and its alignment with your values. I mean, certainly for me, as I've gotten older, that's become something that is really at top of mind. So it's great to hear that from you as well. Yeah, Michelle, look, Arapov really believed that work was only valuable when you had something higher to strive for. And I think over my career, I've just slowly moved from working on projects and programs and clients to really touching things that can do greater good for New Zealand. So we are making that difference with the programs and projects we we touch. So for me to be in a business that's really looking for that high purpose is, is quite aligned to my own purpose and values. Yeah, that's so great. I really love that, Mayuri. Actually, I think it's something that we haven't spoken enough about on this podcast. So it's great to think about that today. And this leads really nicely into my next question for you. So I'd love to hear more about your career journey and if you could share that with us and how did you end up in the role of group leader for Arup in New Zealand? My journey isn't a traditional one because um, I started off with a, a degree in nuclear physics, which which we can talk about later, but that was the, the starting point. But 
the way I applied my study thesis was once again, look at that New Zealand Inc. conversation and look for opportunity to create betterment for New Zealand. So but back when I came out of university, it, inside of me was that feeling of whatever I did had to be of greater good. So I looked for opportunities to improve the environment of New Zealand by using nuclear physics as a technology. And through that, that led me into working in regional government in New Zealand. And when you've worked in regional government, uh, you start to understand how the political system works and how the country starts to make decisions around key things like the environment and key things around transport, water utilities and the like. So you start to understand the hierarchy in the country and how things were. At that point, I had realized that I needed a stronger commercial grounding. So I actually approached MWH at the time. And I actually wrote to them and said, look, I've, I've checked you out on your website. You look like a really interesting company that's got some really strong values. And I can see that you really focus on what they called at the time, six paths to glory. I've heard on the street that your, your local leader on the ground in Christchurch, where I was at the time, is, is a really good sort. I'd like to work for him. What do you think? <laughs> and so there started my my journey with consulting and through my time at MWH, I um, really had an incredible opportunity to experience every single aspect of a consulting firm from technical roles to project delivery roles to running the organization in general management and general management across Australia and New Zealand. So I, I just really loved the growing of humans and making people successful, giving back to place and creating wider good, if you like, and also the um, the commercial nature of consulting. So after almost 14 years at, at MWH, it came to a natural point as the organization got acquired by a, a bigger listed company that it felt like the right time for me to go back and do some, I call it public good. So I took an opportunity with NZTA Wakakotahi to do the role that looks at the land transport system and brings a conversation together of how we strategically invest and plan across the system for land transport in New Zealand. It was a new role and it had an incredible amount of learning challenge, influence and collaboration that came with it. And I had an amazing time for one government term with Wakakotahi and ZTA. Last year, eventually, when Arab appeared on my radar, um, the conversation around alignment values and the focus around creating wider good, a higher purpose, it all started to align with where I was on my own headspace. So so here I am. That's such an interesting journey, Mayuri. And, you know, there's something that on this podcast comes across so clearly is that no one goes to university thinking, I'm going to go work in transport, right? You know, I think it's a really interesting pathway that everyone has that's very different. So it's great to hear from you. And I do want to speak more about your nuclear physics and how that came about. And we'll get to that. But thanks for sharing your story. I think it's really interesting to kind of reflect on people's backgrounds and and how they end up in the roles they're in. And certainly, you know, this podcast, which is all about women who move nations, is around unpacking that. And I want to say, this podcast is not just about needing to be the CEO or the leader of a, an authority or an operator to be moving a nation. And we know that from the guests that we've interviewed, 
And indeed, the partnerships with private sector and advisory firms is key to having the right access to capabilities and skills in order to deliver the right outcomes and the best outcomes for communities. And so what I wanted to ask you in your role where you support and advise CEOs of public transport authorities and operators and industry, how do you move nations? Thank you, Michelle. Michelle, the work we do, we're really in privileged roles. And I think we sometimes don't recognize that fast enough. We are working right across these projects, across the project life cycle with our clients from feasibility through to planning, engineering, design, and delivery, and through to even operational readiness. And it really gives us an opportunity to influence our clients to think differently, to look at the picture or the problem they're trying to solve through a different lens and really bring that influence into projects. One of the current ones that we've been working on in the transport sector is actually um, partnering with the Ministry of Transport to develop a um, national scale agent-based model, which will help the ministry look at how different types of levers and policies would impact our land transport system changes in a much more unified and systematic way, but also a lot more based on current real-time information. So that's one of the things that I think, you know, if, if we can bring that kind of innovation and really help our clients and influence them, it helps bring a much more diverse conversation at the beginning of a problem. For this particular project, we've brought our teams from New Zealand and London together. They're working with the ministry and we're just, you know, co-designing this to have this simulation model for New Zealand to help the ministry improve its ability to see what the impact of potential changes on the land transport system would be as a result of any policy changes that they're looking at. That's just one example of where we are looking at it in the modeling and the early, early side of projects. But another place where we can really influence and where we have been has been in, in the public transport domain is actually looking at the Auckland Light Rail project and working with the Auckland Light Rail establishment unit that was um, set in place I want to say earlier this year by Cabinet to look at what the opportunity for light rail in Auckland looks like. So the team has been working on getting a business case ready to help government make the decisions they need to on this connection on what what the modes are, what the routes are, and to give an, a highly um, indicative cost estimate on what, what these things are going to cost the government to actually put in place. So we do get a lot of room to influence things in the realm of whether it's the modeling, planning, feasibility, or design and delivery with and through projects and programs with our clients. Mayuri, it's so interesting to hear about the different kinds of work that you do and, and how you're working with the authorities around setting up that future for New Zealand. So thanks for sharing around that. I wanted to come back to the comments I've made about the nuclear physics because <laughs> I think it's really interesting, right? You know, what a different kind of background to to end up, you know, in the role that you're in as group leader for New Zealand at Arab, where obviously you have a transport background, but much broader as well. So I understand you have a bachelor's degree in physics and mathematics and a master's of science in nuclear physics. I wanted to ask you, how was your education shaped and influenced your own professional journey and the work that you do? 
Michelle, what a huge question, huh? Um, <laughs> I know, but, you know, let's just uh, see how we go with it. So I have this fundamental philosophy. I have to love what I do. And if I do what I love, it, it feels effortless. So um, the stark reality for me at my bachelor's university is was I was actually really good at maths and physics and I loved maths and physics and I understood it. And I was actually not so good at biology and all the other things that that were um, sort of human biology and medical and, and I just didn't appeal to me. So I loved maths and physics. I understood it. And when I dived into nuclear physics, I genuinely did what I loved doing. And that I think for me is a theme throughout my life. I've just picked playing in things that my heart falls in love with so I can actually have fun while I do it. Once I had been in nuclear physics, I thought, oh, well, we're in New Zealand now. Now, this is a nuclear-free country. So um, how can I make a difference to NZ Inc. or New Zealand with doing what I'm doing? So I started exploring what the different problems that could be solved in New Zealand were at the time. And one really stark issue we had was in the late 90s, there was this huge air pollution problem in Christchurch in the South Island of New Zealand. For example, in the year 2000, they had like 60 nights a year where the World Health Organization particulate guidelines were exceeded in the Christchurch airshed. And what that meant was people who were living in Christchurch had a really high incidence of asthma. And um, I mean, people who lived there at the time would describe it that they'd go outside the house on a winter's night and come back smelling like they've been in a bar all night. It was absolutely that bad. So some of the research at the time was pointing to how you could use low energy proton beams to study the air pollution that would then lead to source apportionment to then understand, you know, what amount of pollution came from what source through fingerprinting that occurs as a as a natural reaction. And that could help the New Zealand government work out how to bring in different policy and um, other sort of regulation changes so as to improve the environment. So this really appealed to me. Here I'm using something that's usually has a negative connotation with it in Clean Green New Zealand to do something good with it. So I set out to do just that. And my thesis helped form a part of the collateral that showed uh, what the issue with the air pollution was in Christchurch. And I was very fortunate at the end of my thesis, the, the council had a role for me, for me to go and actually work with politicians and to work with the scientists and other planners to see how the science then turned to regulation and planning and policy. And to me, that piece is the biggest learning from the whole program in, you know, working in the science and then implementing policy and seeing it change through regulation and getting an impact on the ground, just that came to life for me in the early years of my career. And, and I think that really um, made a difference to the things I focused on after that. Wow. Mayuri, it's really incredible to hear your experience in that. And I mean, to me, it's clear that that has really shaped your journey, actually, and how you think about things. And it really comes across in 
in the way that you talk about it. I mean, it gets me reflecting my thesis was on the constitutional validity of anti-terrorism orders. So really nothing to do with what I do now. So it's really interesting to reflect on your science background and, and how that supports you today. You're talking about the environment and its impacts and that's something that, as you know, has become such a huge conversation and topic of extreme importance right around the world, including New Zealand. And it's something that we are very focused on now in public transport, particularly around sustainability, transitioning to zero emissions, but looking at that end-to-end cycle. And I wanted to ask you, what do you think is the most important thing the public transport sector can do to play its part in creating a sustainable future? Wow, Michelle, once again, another great question. I mean, if I bring it to home for us, Auckland's home to 1.7 million people, and it is New Zealand's largest and fastest growing urban centre. And in the next 30 years, we will have a million more people calling Auckland home. Transport right now is about 40% of Auckland's emissions. And so public transport has a significant role to to play to help us set up Auckland for the long term and also to navigate us closer to achieving our carbon targets. So there are so many things in that and um, we need to look at how our urban form is shaped. So we have housing, business and organized with better travel options. So this, this, look, this includes looking at where our public facilities are, making sure it's near high quality public transport and ensuring that we've got active modes really supported in those transitional facilities. Public transport needs to be a really attractive choice for our communities. You know, we have to work on making sure that we're constantly investing in infrastructure that optimizes that network to make it a really efficient and attractive choice for people. The other piece I can see playing in here is we're in such a hyper-connected digital world. Uh, My kids are constantly on their little iPhones. I mean, their whole world just exists in there. So I look at that and I think, you know, our public transport system needs to be really integrated and intuitive across all modes and also digitally. So it really helps the, the generation that's coming just seamlessly use public transport as a really easy, efficient, safe and smart choice. We also need to think a little bit about how we're incentivizing and disincentivizing the pricing levers that help public transport play a stronger role and be more attractive and how we make it less attractive for single occupancy cars into the city. So I think these are things that Auckland's going to be grappling with now more than ever before. Yeah, I agree, Mayuri. And you've brought up all the key points, I think, that are right now the topic of conversation, but also we're all grappling with in this sector. There's no doubt that public transport has to be a more attractive choice. And I think looking at what levers we can use is really key to that. You have such a good grasp of the issues that are on the table, what we need to do. And I wanted to ask you, it's a bit of a crystal ball question in some ways, but what are your predictions for what transport will look like in five years' time? If we'd had this conversation before the pandemic, my answer would have looked so much more different to where I've got to today. I feel that the public transport future is wrapped with uncertainty. 
there's this climate crisis that requires a fundamental shift in travel behavior to help us get to that net zero carbon economy. The pandemic and how we recover from that, every time we go into lockdowns, we reduce capacity. You know, we, we need to prop up or fund public transport to keep it running. And then we have to reset the whole equation around safely ensuring people can get back on public transport. Recovery from the pandemic is going to be quite a significant piece in this. And then the huge technological progress that we've got going on around us. So all the models of public transport, I think, need to take these things into account and and really reshape how we think about personal mobility. So um, I look at the transport industry and I think that uh, with things like ride hailing and the autonomous vehicles combined with the pandemic and the impact on funding brings a whole different game of what public transport could look like in our future. We have to think a little bit about how we use the best of what technology has and combine that with an optimized sort of high-frequency core network and bring together a shared transport micromobility to improve how we create a resilient system and really think about those first mile, last mile type connections. This technology piece and mobility as a service is really allowing people to have this real-time information to, to keep enhancing how they move. So we need to think about this and the experience of people and the passengers and, and how we build that trust in people in a reliable public transport system to manage that service and make it attractive, more attractive than single occupancy cars. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the opportunity is how do we make it more attractive than single vehicle occupancy cars? And I mean, I know, you know, I'm based in Melbourne, you're in Auckland, we're in cities in Australia and New Zealand where everyone does love their car. You know, we we don't have the, the patronage or the ridership levels of public transport that you see in some of the European cities particularly. But I think, you know, coming back to New Zealand, some of our listeners are in New Zealand, but also we have listeners all around the world. And I wanted to get your thoughts around what's happening in New Zealand. I know that you've had extensive experience leading and advising on infrastructure and urban planning projects in New Zealand, as well as Australia. And as we know, you work for Arab Global Organisation, What do you think New Zealand does well in terms of transport projects? And what are some approaches from abroad that you'd like to see implemented in New Zealand? I know this is a big question, but let's just see how we go. Michelle, I think in New Zealand, something we do do well when I look across at the other countries around the globe is we try to do our best and do um, good early engagement with our iwi and Maori partnerships. And I can see if I look back in time to where we are now, we really try and bring our Murray iwi tribes right into the conversation at the very beginning of these infrastructure projects. And don't get me wrong, we're still on a journey. We haven't got it right, but we have improved so much in how we're bringing that whole cultural aspect into how we look at our projects and what we deliver through those projects. So. Um, If I think a little bit about, you know, some things I'd like to see us do better in New Zealand, I'd like to see us really be more brave in how we bring 
private capital and be more bold in terms of how we do funding and financing of the infrastructure we need in New Zealand to give our people better access to opportunities. We've got such a big funding deficit. And if we were open to more of the public-private opportunities and bringing that capital in and helping the capital work, I think we could unlock some significant infrastructure potential in New Zealand. I'd also like to see something better in the conversation on multimodal integration when it's planning funding and the delivery of transport. Still like an entity like Transport for New South Wales that really tries to drive that true multimodal thinking across the land transport system. I think we're still yet to get there. We're slowly making that transition now. I'd like to see us also facilitate a better conversation to get outputs through our projects for better transit-oriented development so that we are actually helping people live and play and travel to their employment and recreation in a really smart way. Yeah, I think there's lots of ideas there and opportunities too, Mayuri, but I do want to acknowledge, I think it's absolutely incredible the way in New Zealand you embrace the cultural aspects and that inclusion piece. I think there's a lot that we can still learn in Australia from that, but I'm sure other countries around the world as well. So I do want to say, I think that that is such a strength. It's very impressive. Yeah, thanks. I think we're still on a journey too though, Michelle, but yeah, we do do that better than some of our other um, global counterparts. Yeah, absolutely. So Mayuri, I wanted to take the conversation now into a different direction around your professional journey, which is a part of the podcast that I absolutely love. And I want to hear more about you and I'm sure our listeners do as well. I wanted to ask you, looking back in in the range of roles that you've done, I'm sure you would have made some really critical decisions along the way about what career opportunities you would take and perhaps wouldn't take as well. So could you share with us, how do you go about making career choices and any experiences where you've made a major career decision? Yeah, Michelle, I think this is a really important thing and this needs to be really intentional. I have always done a values alignment check to see whether the organization or the group of people that I'm looking at have either the purpose and their values uh, in alignment or in the same frame or are connected to how I'm looking at things. So I think that to me is that fundamental, you can feel that uh, connection and alignment or you don't is a really big important piece that has always shaped each choice I've made. When I approached MWH, I, I mentioned at the very beginning, um, that was a a very intentional point where I looked for an organization that had uh, leadership across their values. They looked after their people and people investment and looking after people was an important thing for that organization. And the leader had a reputation for being a good people leader with good values and, um, and their teams enjoyed working for them. So it's a simple checks of what does this organization feel like and what are the humans of the organization like? And I think that's been something I've tested each time and to keep meeting enough people in the organization until you feel 
comfortably that you understand how how people think and also doing a little bit of an audit check and asking a few others who wouldn't necessarily have any reason to be positive about the organization or negative, just would have an informed view of, of what they have seen. So do your due diligence and make sure that um, there's a values and alignment with who you are and what, what they're doing so that you can really connect in terms of the purpose of what you're trying to achieve. That's been a big piece for me. The next piece for me has been that the organization needs to really strive to achieve something better in the community. So there needs to be some sort of purpose that is about creating a better New Zealand for me. At Waka Kotahi NZTA, that's absolutely what drove me to um, do some of the programs and projects I did in the organization. But the choice of going there was to also touch NZ Inc. and really be involved in giving something better back to New Zealand. And then coming to Arab and looking at what the global opportunity in Arab and how we bring some of the global talent to New Zealand to actually unlock some of the key potential around multimodal transport or transit-oriented development or just the smarts of technology. And it was just this opportunity to do something better for our country. And I think that's really important to me every time I've just made those uh, intentional changes. Mariuri, thanks for sharing. It's really interesting to think about the due diligence aspect because I think it's something that often we miss or we don't think about so much, right? But it is important to ask people about their informed opinions. So thanks so much for sharing that. You know, I wanted to ask you in terms of how you plan your career generally, and this is one of my favorite questions to ask on our podcast. Do you have a five to 10 year plan for your career? Or do you assess the opportunities as they come along? Yeah, Michelle, I have to confess, I have never had a five to 10 year plan. And I have really been driven by um, looking at what it is I'm trying to achieve with the opportunity that I'm currently in. And then um, making sure that I'm exploring all the potential in that opportunity. So it's not just, I don't generally take a role to just do the role in front of me. I'll take the role to deliver what I need to deliver for the role, but then I look at what more potential we can realize for the organization and the betterment of New Zealand and just explore that. So that generally leads you into a series of next steps that you never plan for, but you you eventually fall into because your um, intention is really clear through through that process. You know which things you want to touch because it will make a difference and you know which things won't. So you can learn to prioritize effort. So a plan then just sort of emerges. And I always remain open to opportunity. I I always say if someone wants to have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, I'm always, you know, I always listen to the opportunity to understand what a person's suggesting. So while the timing is not always right because you might be in the middle of a great opportunity in your current role, I think it's really important to listen to any opportunity someone has in mind for you to think about. And then also um, keep that relationship because for me, this life is about long-term relationships. So so the relationship piece and the the organic evolution of um, of opportunities, probably how I have planned my career. 
Thanks for sharing, Mayuri. It's always really interesting to hear our guests' responses to that question. And I appreciate you being so candid as well, right, around how you make those decisions. And the career plan one's an interesting one because our guests have all had different responses to that question. So thank you. There's something else I wanted to ask you about, and it is very much around sharing about your skills, how you've developed them, and also your advice. And, you know, let's be real around this. The public transport industry, like many others, is a long way off achieving gender balance, particularly at the senior levels. You've held very senior roles in government, private sector. You've sat on boards. I know that you were on New Zealand's peak infrastructure body board, Infrastructure New Zealand. And I wanted to ask you, what are the skills you've developed along the way that you think have helped you obtain those roles? And what advice do you have for other women trying to reach those senior levels? Yeah, Michelle, our industry needs a strong, diverse uh, representation to make sure that we are um, making good decisions. So one of the things that I would say is, you know, don't ever be afraid to say what you think. Be ready to spot the unconscious bias that's going on around you and um, have the confidence and the tools in hand to deal with that. So for me, that's the, when I spot unconscious bias, I make myself aware of it. And then it may change the tactics I use to navigate an issue or a conversation instead of getting frustrated at at seeing that something like unconscious bias, which is picking on one thing, it's just then going, okay, now this has just given me some information about the environment I'm dealing with. Now I can organize how I approach this so that it plays with, with the agenda on the table. So um, I think I've I've always been one of those people who've approached problems with the sort of purpose of making a significant difference to NZNC. So to, for me, it's been easy to go, actually, what I'm trying to achieve from this conversation or this project or this, this board meeting is this outcome, which is going to help us move further in the agenda of New Zealand. So actually, let's depersonalize what what I might be seeing as a as dynamics in a boardroom or a meeting, and just work out how I keep the higher purpose in mind, and uh, make sure that I, I align the the room to the higher purpose, and then generally that starts to get some more alignment at the heart, and and the heads follow, and and you get success eventually. I'm not sure if that's a little bit nebulous, Michelle, but it's that kind of taking yourself out of the equation, but creating that vision around a higher purpose that's really helped me sort of navigate bringing people together. Yeah, thanks, Mayuri. I think it's really interesting to reflect on that around your ability to bring people together and how that's so critical to your career progression. Mayuri, I wanted to ask you, you know, more around your thoughts around how we can be bringing women up the ranks. What do you think we can do in the public transport industry to attract and retain high caliber women? Michelle, there's something really about creating the space and making women more visible in these senior roles, really helping with building confidence and and whether it's through formal training, informal sponsorship or whatever it is, but being really intentional that we are supporting our mid-level or, you know, women through the different parts of their um, career to stay in the game and not get put off. Because 
often what I have seen is in the sort of the mid years that women can get put off because actually it can get to be quite tough working in this sector. And I think the more we can make uh, role models visible, the more we can support women, the more we can have, I mean, with the pandemic, the flexible working just appeared overnight, right? And the whole blending of hybrid work home and, and just realizing that potential and helping women be successful. And I think at the same time, in a, in a family dynamic, you're actually helping a family be successful by um, empowering, you know, partners equally. So I think there's something to be said in that really playing the flexibility opportunity that's arrived with the pandemic and, and making these senior roles and the role models very visible. So, so we're creating that vision in the public sector. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, this is why we're doing this podcast to profile women, but also you need to be able to see yourself when you look at leaders in the sector. So I think that's what's inspiring as well. So Mayuri, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on that. I'm at my final question. It's the one we always ask. And I think it's a really important one. What advice would you have for our listeners who might be early on in their career in public transport and mobility? Michelle, I think based on a couple of the other questions, my my theme was uh, very much around making sure that you have a values and culture alignment with any opportunity you're you're considering. So really think hard about the values and culture because that will become very important throughout that opportunity. I think remaining open to considering any opportunity that arrives at your door and being absolutely intentional in looking after those people who've brought you those opportunities to consider as well and just you know keeping those relationships. I think there's something really important to focus on when you're doing your roles to really focus on the results and making sure that you're investing your time in the right place and doing a self-check to see if the results of what you're doing are supporting the, the strategy you're taking. So there's that check and balance in place to make sure that you're investing and getting the right results in the in the job or, or project that you're doing. I think there's this inherent um, growing the others around you to make sure that you create the opportunities for the others that are around you. So you're lifting the overall capability and, and giving people opportunities. And one of the big ones for me is making decisions. You know, don't be afraid to make a wrong decision. Use the information you have, but don't get held back by what you think you need to know. So make the decision. You may get it wrong, but it's highly unlikely it's going to be more detrimental than not making the decisions. So be brave and make the decisions. It can get really lonely in this space. So having um, a support system around you is really important. For me, the um, different roles of family, friends, peers, that is a really important part of the mix of the oxygen I need to keep, keep going. So I'm really hoping, Michelle, in that conversation, there are some nuggets that um, will help some of our listeners and would be valuable for their careers. Yeah, there absolutely is, Mayuri. I mean, I'm actually just really inspired thinking about that. 
the be brave and make decisions. And also though, the importance of the support network, we actually haven't spoken about that much on our podcast series up until this date. So I really appreciate you bringing that idea and the importance of that to the fore. Thank you so much, Mayuri. This has been an awesome conversation. I have absolutely loved chatting to you and I'm so delighted you could join us today. It has been inspiring hearing about your journey and I'm just, I can hear your passion, right? You're so passionate about transport and New Zealand too and what's going on there. So I just want to say a really big thank you and um, goodbye to you as well and good luck. Thanks, Michelle. Kakite ano. Till we meet again, Mayuri, you'll have to teach me the uh, Kiwi phrase for that when we next catch up. <laughs> Kakite. Thank you. That was Mayuri Gunatilaka, the group leader in New Zealand for Arab. I'm your host, Michelle Batsis. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast. Please tune in again soon. Thank you for listening to Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast. This series is produced by Dylan Adler with copywriting by Sophia Dickinson. Thanks for joining us as we profile women working in public transport and sustainable mobility and inspire the next generation of female leaders. I'm Michelle Batsis. Keep safe and keep our nations moving. <laughs>